You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Hi, welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is Lindsay Smalling, and you're listening to the SOCAP podcast. For this episode, we're going to share a live recording from one of our SOCAP 365 events that we hosted at Impact Hub San Francisco on April 4th, 2018. This event was titled Unusual Investments, Breaking the Mold for Raising and Investing Capital. And we were featuring this conversation because there are amazing emerging investment models that are better at aligning investors with entrepreneurs. In the ways that they structure terms, it can incentivize long-term sustainable growth instead of just prioritizing short-term gain. And these deals tend to be less exploitative of the entrepreneur and the consumer, and they grow community wealth. For this conversation, we invited Rodney Foxworth, who's the executive director of Bali, to be our moderator. And he was joined by a wonderful group of panelists in Jenny Casson, who recently authored a book called Raise Capital on Your Own Terms, Ted Levinson, who is the founder and CEO of Beneficial Returns, and Anir Benami, who is the managing director for Candide Group. So let's jump right in. My name is Rodney Foxworth. I'm the ED for Bali, which is the business alliance for local living economies. And so we're really here to talk about unusual investments. And I think what's really interesting is why don't we want to make these so-called unusual investments, we want to make them mainstream, right? So that's the goal is that we want to actually make this more of a mainstream thing. And so just for some framing, I think it's really important for us to think about where we are in terms of new business creation, entrepreneurship, and equity, particularly in the U.S., So we're actually at a 50-year low in new business creation uh, from entrepreneurs, which is something that's very significant. We're supposed to be a country and a place where innovation is king, um, and that is is no longer the the, the case. And so that's one thing. We're also dealing with significant racial wealth gaps um, that really impacts entrepreneurship as well. And so one of the things that I think we can all uh, acknowledge, and I think this is why we're all here for this conversation this evening, is that the mainstream investment system is not working, right? And so I'm going to begin with just a softball question to our wonderful panelists. Oops, sorry. Uh, that was my, my tracking for time. Um, so I'm going to start with a softball question and just ask, and we can begin right here with, with Ted. Um, we can actually start here and wonder, and my question is, what's broken with the mainstream investment system? What's broken with the mainstream? I think something that we have broken is that um, there isn't a lot of creativity in our investment system. And I think that that is primarily driven by people's fear that they're not going to do something right, that they're going to miss out on some big opportunity. But I think that there's a tremendous lack of creativity in the world of investment. And that's a shame because there's no lack of creativity in the world of enterprise and the world of social enterprise, which is really what appeals to me. And so my big fear is that uh, social enterprise will continue to be stunted because the folks with the money um, aren't, aren't meeting the entrepreneurs where they need to be met. 
I'm Jenny Casson, and I help entrepreneurs raise money using quote unquote creative strategies. And you know, it kind of depends what you mean by ma the mainstream finance system. The finance system is huge. There's so many different pieces to it. There's the public markets. But you know, what I really focus on is smaller businesses, private businesses, ones that you know are kind of in the earlier stages. And, um, and so what is mainstream finance for a business like that? And where we are in the Bay Area, a lot of people immediately think of, oh, well, the way you finance a startup business is with the venture capital model, which is basically, there are lots, there's the venture capital funds themselves, and then there's angel investors who use a very similar model, and that model involves um, investing at an early stage at a low valuation with the hope that there will be some big liquidity event within seven to 10 years, either the company will be sold or it will be, it will go public, and um, and so and people think that's the mainstream model, but it's actually not the mainstream model. Very few businesses actually get funded that way. But because of where we are, and also because I don't know exactly why, but most small businesses think that that is how you raise funding. And if you can't raise funding that way, your only other option is to basically bootstrap your business. So. Um, I like to point out that there's many, many other ways to raise funding for your business. But what is wrong with the VC model? Um, it's just not a good fit for most businesses. And the model involves a lot of, uh, it, it kind of involves an assumption that maybe one out of 10 businesses will actually succeed in that model. And so it, it, it pushes a lot of businesses to do things that aren't really healthy or sustainable and it leads to a lot of businesses failing that might have been incredibly successful if they had gotten a different type of funding. So that's, I don't like to call the VC model mainstream because it's actually not, but it is the one that sucks a lot of the air out of the room and gets a lot of attention and I think there are a lot of problems with it and I help entrepreneurs find alternatives to that. Model. Thanks. I think what's what's great about uh, being on a panel with uh, you know people you agree with is that um, you know um, we then have to think about new ways to to say the same thing. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, you put you you asked a kind of broad question in terms of the the financial system as a whole. I mean, I would I would say that you know in in our approach to investing in general, we like to say we we care just as much about the how than as we do about the what. So, not necessarily what what a business does is it in a healthcare or energy or food, but really the how it how it treats its stakeholders, uh, what the incentives are who wins when the cus when when the business succeeds who loses when the business fails uh, so I think that's where probably the financial system fails right it's the um, uh, ownership is 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 typically a, you know a speculative ownership it's not it's uh, it's absentee ownership it um, you know it, it seeks to maximize profits at the expense of other stakeholders when there is a, a, a success right when a business succeeds and there's a liquidity event etc how you know, who gains or how many people gain from that right how many of the workers how many of the uh, you know how, how much does the community gain 
uh, you know, typically um, the gains accrue to a very small number of people, right? Very small number of investors, very small number of founders, right? And and vice versa, kind of who loses? Um, it's the the, the uh, tails I win, uh, heads you lose sort of, um, you know, uh, playbook, right? And um, so I would say that, that, that that's, that's sort of, I would say, a general statement and, and, uh, that, that applies to most asset classes, certainly applies to venture capital. Thanks. And so what's really interesting as well is that, um, you know, on that coin flip analogy, unfortunately, it seems like most people are actually on the losing end of that, right? <laughs> unfortunately, right? And so just, just because the level's set, because I think we probably have some diversity in terms of the crowd and around just sort of like what you do. And so what we have represented on the panel is really interesting because, like, for example, Anir represents family offices. You know, Jenny has this phenomenal approach around everyone becoming a, uh, an investor. And Ted, you actually raise capital from philanthropy and foundations. And so I just want, um, if, you could, if you could speak a little bit about how your unique positioning allows you to actually structure some of these alternative deals, right? Because there are differences in terms of if you're raising philanthropic capital, if you're representing a family office, right? Um, what are the unique challenges and opportunities that you have for actually structuring some of these deals? And so, actually, I don't know, uh, Ted, do you want to start? So at Beneficial Returns, we make loans to social enterprises operating in Latin America and Southeast Asia addressing poverty. And we finance equipment so that they can grow and do more of what they're already doing. Uh, to make those loans, we borrow money from family foundations and donor-advised funds, which are like mini family foundations. And uh, our investors share my view about investing. So I, I would describe mainstream, normal, old-fashioned investing as moving money based on the future that you predict. And then impact investing is moving money based on the future you want. And so um, uh, being able to attract investors that share that view um, opens up opportunities for us to make loans that otherwise wouldn't happen. And frankly, that's the only part of the impact investing world which I find even remotely interesting. It's making, using finance to make something happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. And um, there are plenty of challenges of working with uh, philanthropic dollars. I will not name them because I, I will come across as very bitter. But instead, I'll, I'll mention some, some of the good things about working with family foundations. Um, one, they can afford a very long time horizon, and uh, oftentimes. And that means that we can make long-term loans to our borrowers who, because they operate in tough uh, markets, really struggle to make uh, to find capital that will um, permit them to repay loans over anything more than 12 or 18 months. And we make loans of three, four, five, uh, as long as seven years. Uh, so that's one big advantage. Second, uh, these folks already have a lot of money. They have a foundation. They have philanthropic capital. Uh, we live in the country that is um, where people give the largest amount of money away, which is wonderful, and yet, 800 billion of it sits in family foundations, 80 billion in donor advised funds, waiting, they already got tax deductions, waiting to be given away, and while it's sitting there on the sidelines, it's not doing a lot of good. And so we give folks an opportunity to put that money to work. And they happen to be in positions where they can afford uh, a lower return and more risk and less liquidity than your average person can. And uh, a term that I heard is um, describing philanthropic capital as society's risk capital. And so I think uh, that's a great term to, to describe that money. And so 
those those dollars that are available that want to make something happen that otherwise wouldn't happen, those are the dollars that uh, we borrow uh, to make these high-impact loans. So I'm a lawyer, so I got into this by learning about the law that governs how you can raise money. And it is an area, it's called securities law, and it's kind of, it, it can be kind of confusing and intimidating, and I think because of that, a lot there's a lot of confusion about what you can and can't do when you're raising money from investors. And unfortunately, a lot of lawyers are a little bit too lazy, or for whatever reason, they don't bother to really find out what all the options are. And, and I think that's part of the reason why so many entrepreneurs go to venture capital style investors because their lawyers or their advisors have the idea that that's really the only thing that you can do legally, which is not true. So I started learning about this area of law and I just became really fascinated with it. And I started to have clients that were, were really wanting to do things outside the box. So like one of my very first clients was People's Community Market, um, which is still isn't open, but they're getting there. But this was years and years ago when it was really just an idea. And the founder wanted to raise money offering equity with no voting rights and with an annual return of 3%, but no returns for the first seven years. And he wanted to raise several million dollars. And so he tried to do this by pitching at a lot of impact investing conferences and pitch fests and got no investment, even though he often would win the contest because he was really good at pitching, but no one wanted to invest because they're like, are you kidding me? 3% a year, no return for seven years. There's no way you can ever, the value of your investment can never go up. All you can get back out is what you originally invested. No one wanted to invest. And so what we did was we said, well, what if you opened it up to everybody to invest and you didn't just focus on this tiny, tiny pool of professional impact investors who are, you know, they're not interested in this kind of an offering. So um, we did the legal work that made it possible to make this offering to the general public in California and they've raised several million dollars and they're finally getting ready to open. So once, I was so lucky to have that client because it allowed me to do something that I, honestly, I never thought he would succeed, but he did. And so once I saw that it was possible, I started helping more and more clients do similar kinds of offerings and getting really creative with what they, not only how they were raising the money and who their investors were, but also the what they were offering. Because I believe that the best positioned person to design the exact structure of an investment is the entrepreneur, is the founder. I don't think it's a good idea to talk to an investor and have them hand you a term sheet because you know way better than anyone else what is going to happen with your business, what you want to happen with your business, how you want to live your life for the next 10 years, how you want to eventually maybe move on from the business. So you should design the offering. And so we've, I've helped a lot of entrepreneurs design really creative offerings, both equity and debt, um, and also raise money from a much broader pool of potential investors than just the professional investors who often have that VC mindset. Even those who are in the impact investing space often are, are VCs in impact investors' clothing. Yeah, so we, we invest on behalf of, um, of families and foundations. Um, and 
um, yeah, like like Jenny, lucky to have those clients in that they uh, th there's a lot of flexibility that comes with that, right? We're not investing out of a fund structure. It's not a traditional venture fund or, or debt fund. There's not a 10-year time frame. Um, there's uh, the, the, those same families also can invest out of donor advised funds. So the goal really is to have as broad of a set of tools as, as possible, right? The, 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 the rationale is to sort of say, all right, if you, if, if you have a business model that is, you know, a business that is addressing a, a, a social environmental issue in a thoughtful way, in a thoughtful sort of systemic way, and you have a path, a viable, credible path to being financially viable and profitable and sustainable, then there should theoretically be a way to finance that, right? Um, and that the way to finance it might not be the out-of-the-box you know, venture capital term sheet. It might not be the out-of-the-box you know, debt term sheet. Um, but we can sort of work together to think through what is what what are the right what are the right terms to kind of to kind of get there so really resonate with what Ted said earlier about the um, what I call sort of the innovation gap between sort of the investor side of the table and the entrepreneur side of the table right if, if uh, social entrepreneurship at the most basic fundamental level is you know applying business to addressing social environmental issues that maybe used to be addressed solely through philanthropy or, or, or government Right, and we're kind of bringing business to to um, you know we're using business to address these issues, and there's a ton of creativity that goes on to design um, uh, market-based models um, that can address issues like access to energy, access to capital, um, you know, access to good food, obesity, recidivism, you know, all these all these issues, right? And and the businesses that uh, chip away at those issues come in all shapes and forms. Um, you know, they don't all happen to fit just one, just one kind of risk return profile, right? So if we then are sitting on the other side of the table telling the entrepreneurs, great, you all, you know, innovate, find profitable ways to business, you know, build businesses that address all these issues. But here we are waiting with the same term sheet the one we would have used to fund Snapchat, right, for that matter, or any fill-in-the-blank tech company, uh, where the uh, you know a term sheet that doesn't account for the for the mission at all, a term sheet that um, has a very specific kind of liquidity envisioned, right, may or may not fit what you're doing to address recidivism, right, or to address food access. Um, so there's there, I think we we definitely have a little bit of catching up to do in terms of kind of the finance or investor community to, to build, to design, develop more, add more tools to our toolkit so we can better meet the needs of sort of different kinds of business models. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about SOCAP 18 and SOCAP 365 at www.socialcapitalmarkets.net. And I really appreciate the comment around the gap in innovation between investors and entrepreneurs, right? Because to be frank, I mean, 
one of the reasons why the Impact Hub began is because you're, you're supporting entrepreneurs that are really taking on challenges like, you know, to Donir's to, to point, recidivism, which is something that's costly to society, is obviously from financial terms, but very specifically in terms of the human capital losses uh, lost in communities. And so when I think about this, it's something that Ted pointed out. Um, I really love the phrase that philanthropy um, is really society's risk capital. And so I wanted, one of the things that we talked about a little bit in the preparation for this conversation, um, and something that's always a constant thread in these discussions around impact investing in particular, um, and Ted, you sort of got to start a little bit about the idea about uh, market rate returns, right? And I would love for you to just sort of share a bit on your perspective, particularly as someone who represents foundations and other uh, sort of, as you said, that you're really happy to have these kind of investors um, that understand um, the opportunities to support communities and invest in this particular type of way. But can you speak a little bit to, and then I'll open up to everyone else as well, um, can you speak to how you think about market rate returns? I can. First thing that I'll say is that markets don't give us everything that society wants. And yet, I happen to think that they're very efficient ways of marshalling resources, and we shouldn't throw markets out the window. Um, by any means. Uh, but there is a reason why there are more cell phones in sub-Saharan Africa than there are toilets. Um, the reason is there's more money to be made with cell phones than there are with toilets. Um, and um, I believe, though, that markets still uh, give us the best opportunity to bring toilets to people who need them. But um, there's a disconnect in my mind that if markets aren't bringing what society wants, um, how then can you expect a market rate return when you're trying to deliver to the world what the world needs? So I, I think that there's, there's a, I don't know if tautology is the right word or not, uh, but there, there's a problem. It's messed up. <laughs> it's messed up that folks are looking for this market rate risk and market rate return, um, but they want to fix broken markets. And so something has to give. And so um, I believe that um, we don't need to throw out markets at all. In fact, they present our best opportunity to fix things. But we do need to adjust our expectations if we're um, seeking, um, if we're making investments. I just don't think it's fair to expect um, market uh, failures. Uh, Solutions to mar market solutions to market failures that also produce market returns. Something's got to give. And what I always say on this topic is let's really be super, let's do our due diligence before saying what is a market rate return. Because, you know, how many angel investors have you talked to who, if you ask them, you know, how much money have you made on all those investments you've made? Oh, nothing yet. <laughs> so, and then um, the Kauffman Foundation did a study of venture capital investing and found that the average return was zero to negative. Yes, there are some VC funds who have really made huge amounts of money, but on average, those funds are making zero to negative returns for their investors. So I just, I hate to have this idea that like, if I, I have a client that pays a 5% annual return and it's not guaranteed but it's a target and they have paid it every year. Sometimes they might pay a little bit more but they'll they basically pay a 5% annual dividend. And they've raised about $20 million. They have people lining up to invest in their company every time they open up the investment opportunity. And you know some people might say 5%, that's really not very good. But 
here's the case where people are lining up to make this investment. And I think partially that's because 5% is actually a good return if you can count on it every year. Uh, and second of all, it's a very awesome mission-driven company that people want to be a part of. So I just, you know, if, if the return that you're able to pay out of your business doesn't look like a VC-style return, don't assume that that means that you won't be able to find investors. You know, I mentioned people's community market, 3% a year, no guarantee. So just what is market rate is a lot more complicated than what some people would have you believe. If I can add a, a comment, you want to hear a really bad return? Negative 100%. You know who gets those returns? Anybody who writes a check to a nonprofit, right? Every, uh, foundations give away money, you and I give away money, companies give away money, guaranteed negative 100% return. And so I believe that if we can shift the conversation away and rather than compare impact investing to the stock market or the successful VCs or any of these other, or some imaginary number out there and look how lousy we appear in comparison, I would love instead for us to look at, to not, not to dissuade anyone from giving money away, but to point out how this can recycle philanthropic capital and um, maybe change, change that perspective from, from people. I, I'm tired of apologizing for lousy returns um, in impact investing. We actually provide phenomenal returns. They're just not all financial. This is a rich topic, right? We could just spend the next. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, one, one comment is, um, I think, around the, the wealth distribution, right? And just keeping that in mind as if we're trying to, want part of what we're, really big picture kind of trying to do here is um, is create a you know a, a, a more equitable more equitable uh, distribution of wealth and opportunity um, this is something you know we, we again think about in the context of outcomes for the companies we invest in so if we're if you're investing in a company that provides offers credit to I don't know farmers in Central America and those farmers were made you know a little bit better off perhaps through that uh, intervention but then the company re um, was massively successful, and uh, the the venture capitalist or whoever you know, very very wealthy individuals who invested in that company earned a you know five hundred percent IRR. The outcome is you increased you know um, wealth inequality, right? That wasn't that the whole point was to decrease wealth inequality, right? But you ended up taking uh, way more gains than you created in the community or that that you were. Um, uh, pur uh, purported to, to, to help and, and, and support. Um, I, I, just to echo then Ted's point a little bit is I, I think you have to ask yourself, there is a, a, a universe of sort of impact investing opportunities. Let's not kind of dwell on the maybe terminology, but there really, we're, we're, there really is kind of an, an arbitrage opportunity. It really is uh, an opportunity that the markets haven't addressed because they don't, they don't see it. They perceive it as, um, they're blind to it, they perceive it as more risky than maybe it is, or you know, maybe they're not seeing the, uh, you think about uh, companies like, uh, you know, our, our clients are invested in a company called Maven that um, 
uh, you know, that uh, uh, attract a lot of venture capital money eventually as well, which um, uh, works with uh, independent, uh, predominantly black hairstylists. Hair uh, so it's a, a market that your, your average white VC was just sort of blind to, right? So there's an arbitrage opportunity. And in the process, this company is significantly increasing incomes for those hairstylists. So that, there is a universe of those opportunities. But there are, but that's, you know, there, there's only so many, I, I, I would argue, there's only so many of those where the market is just sort of dumb and you can, uh, and you can kind of outsmart the market and, and, and capitalize on those arbitrage opportunities. The others are truly market failures because it really is hard to, to serve uh, smallholder farmers in remote uh, Western Kenya. Right? You're not gonna. You're not supposed to get. If, if if that was if it was easy to do, somebody would have done it, right? And so the intervention there has to has to actually uh, be costly versus uh, trying to beat some imaginary benchmark, right? So you got to really differentiate between kind of the market arbitrage and the market failure. I really appreciate that framing, and Maven's such a great example of this because, you know, you pointed out it was sort of uh, what's dumb in the market. I might put, push it a little bit that there's a lot of isms, right, um, in the space. So, for example, with Maven, quite frankly, had you, you know, as an African-American from Baltimore, right, um, had you gone to, like, my mom, <laughs> for example, she would have known there was a huge opportunity here, right? Um, and so, you know, there's the side of it when we think about this uh, in terms of who's making investments, right? And so there are, there are significant market gaps oftentimes because you can't see your, those, those opportunities are invisible. So I appreciate you uh, for you lifting that up. And it makes me think again about some of these inventive ways of looking at equity and equity-like instruments. Many of you may have been at SOCAP a couple of years ago. I know Lindsay remembers this when Jessica Norwood, who's one of the fellows in the Bali Network, um, worked with Kevin Jones and others to unveil uh, the, the runway project, right? Which was really identifying that, look, uh, for African-American entrepreneurs who don't have the friends and family access uh, for financial uh, investment uh, for their first business, like others do, um, then we might need to create another kind of instrument, a product. And so really partnered with Self-Help Credit Union to develop a financial product, a, a, credit, a certificate of deposit that really acted like um, an equity-like um, investment opportunity for African-American entrepreneurs in the East Bay. And so they've been able to make some investments out of that. So I want to like stick with that thread because really one of the things we spoke a lot about yesterday was, you know, um, the lack of creativity in particular, you know, folks are familiar with like debt products and debt-like products, but then what are some of the inventiveness that's happening in an equity space? And so I'd like to start with Anir, if you, if you don't mind, with an example of some of the work that you've done that's been really, I think, in, in innovative, uh, but the audience might not be familiar with. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it, it, we're, it's definitely still work in progress. I think we're always trying to, to tweak and, and add more um, arrows to our quiver, more tools to, to our uh, toolbox. Um, you know, I think high level, um, you know, sort of back, back of the envelope, if you think about you know, how much capital and how much time you need to build the business and, and get to, to profitability, um, you know, the, the less time or the less money, the more the instrument we will, would propose is more, ends up being a little bit more debt-like, you know, might be flexible, more flexible debt, maybe debt that's tied to, to revenues, right, revenue-based finance. And then the more money or the more time you need, uh, the more we, we would sort of lean into equity, right? And so um, 
and then equity, if we still, if we want to, if, if we think a, a business needs equity, meaning uh, it's not probably not reasonable uh, to assume there, there, there's going to be kind of payout or distributions over time in the, in the, in the coming few years, um, and we still want to sort of avoid um, falling back into the traditional sort of venture kind of exit uh, mentality, uh, we have used um, uh, redemption rights or put options for, um, uh, for, for our equity investments, which basically means that uh, we collectively sort of agree that um, at, a, at a certain point in time, assuming the business is healthy and profitable uh, and can take on some, uh, some more conventional debt, at that stage and can buy our shares back, sometimes at a predetermined preset price, sometimes not. Um, right? So one so I'll give two real quick examples of those two sort of models. One, um, on the revenue-based finance side, uh, you know, we invested in a small solar, a residential solar installer in West Virginia. So doing the sort of hard work of trying to create a solar industry in West Virginia and they actually are working with or uh, a nonprofit that retrains former coal miners and um, trying to provide them with a, a path to, to jobs in the solar industry. So this is uh, this worked well, in our opinion, for that revenue-based financing model because it's a, it's a company that just needed a small, relatively small amount of money. It was a, a roughly three hundred thousand dollar investment. Um, they are, uh, they're they're a pretty lean business, so they would become profitable at, at about about $2 million in sales, they could start being profitable. So, you know, you know the, the numbers kind of worked there and it was, um, we designed a, um, a, a loan that was, that had some very low sort of um, um, uh, base interest rate and then if they exceed some sales level, we would also get some additional, we'd get some additional payments through revenue shares uh, up, to, up to some maximum amount. I think it was, I think it was 2x our investment, I don't recall exactly. Uh, so that worked well for that business. And then uh, uh, another example, more on the equity side, a, a company called Uncommon Cacao that um, uh, connects uh, uh, cacao growers in the developing world with chocolate makers in the US. And uh, they've raised a couple million dollars now, so a little bit more. Um, and we knew they're, they're, they're it would take a few years for them to, to, to become profitable. It wasn't a next year sort of thing. It was um, break even as, or, or, or where we think the company needs to be to, to, to be sort of a, a, a profitable, self-sustaining business was probably more around 10 or $15 million in sales, right? So it needed a little bit more runway. And uh, so that was an equity investment. Um, um, not to get into a lot of the details, pretty conventional, but but we mutually sort of agreed that um, we're not necessarily assuming that they would exit, that they would sell the business to anyone. It, it's a possibility, although uh, given sort of how uh, how uniquely they approach the supply chain, it's not clear how you know how they would integrate into another bigger supply chain player. Um, and so the idea there is, again, if they are a $10, $15 million 
re revenue business and are reasonably profitable at that stage, they can take on some more conventional debt and use some of that capital to buy our shares back. And we, uh, and we also specify sort of the mechanism for how that the price would be determined at that at that stage. But that 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 sort of envisioned to happen over you know, uh, years, sort of seven to nine of our investment or so. Thanks. And so. Um Ted, I wanted to go to you for a moment because there's, um, there's a way that you've actually structured with beneficial returns, a way to incentivize um, your investees to actually achieve their impact measures. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it incentivize. I would call it reward. But first, I'm tired of you asking all the questions. I have a question for you. What is the point of the tonic in off? Yeah, what's the point of the tonic in a gin and tonic? It's not a joke. It's a good question. What's the point of the tonic? Can you tell me? It's to, it's to just, you know, it's what carries the gin, right? Everybody wants the gin. The tonic is, okay, the tonic's just there to, to bring the gin to your lips. And, and I think that we forget, why, why do we do this? Why do we do impact investing? It's for the impact. It's not for the investing. The investing's a tonic. That's just a, that's just a thing that moves. We want impact, right? For everyone on the stage, sure. <laughs> It made sense to me. But if you want, it, it, I consider a successful loan has really two things. One, you get paid back. And two, the borrower has deep impact. And so I think we ought to reward them for that. So we, um, we've adopted something that's incredibly simple. Anyone else that makes loans could do the same. But we offer to our borrowers that we will waive the final uh, payment, loan payment, if they've made all the others on time, and if they have uh, achieved or exceeded an impact metric. And we have them set that metric, and we have them report on whether they've done it or not. So this is not a penalty if they fall short. We don't doubt them. If they've made 59 payments on time, and they tell us that they've um, had their desired goal of installing biodigesters for small-scale <clears throat> small farmers, we believe them. If they tell us they've installed solar panels, uh, in homes that previously had no electricity, we believe them. And the net financial impact of that works out to about a half percent. So we earn less, but we're doing it for the impact. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of that and to reward that when it happens. And um, also to be mindful of the fact that um, removing that final uh, payment makes it a little easier for them to um, increase their impact. And that's really, that's why we're doing this. And so, um, so we're very proud of that. And uh, ultimately one day, we'd like to have a foundation uh, make us whole <clears throat> for that last payment. But, um, but right now it's coming out of our pocket. But again, we're glad to do it because that's the whole reason that we're doing this work. You're listening to Money and Meaning. You can find out more about SOCAP at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, with a list of our upcoming events, including our annual conference at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, October 23rd to 26th, 2018. You know, Ted, I really love that how you frame that. It is rewarding the impact. 
And one of the things that comes up quite often with social entrepreneurs, particularly when I think about the ones in our network, but just in general, it's almost like you're being penalized to create impact because it's not like you're oftentimes getting, you, you have to make the same kind of return and also make the social impact. And so it's sort of, you know, one of the frustrations that I hear quite a bit is, you know, we're doing both. We're doing the hardest thing to do and yet being penalized for creating, you know, creating social impact, creating environmental impact in a positive way and also having to, return um, to our earlier conversation around market rate return. So. Oh, sorry, I thought, I, I thought you would have. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask, uh, Jenny, um, if you could speak a little bit, because you, you talked about people's market. Um, I'd love to hear more about uh, Force for Good Fund and some other things that you've worked on um, that'll be, if, if that's helpful. And then actually, since Ted already started it, I'd love if there were any questions that you had of each other that you'd like to pose. So um, first, I just want to plug my book. <laughs> this just came out in October, and one of the chapters actually goes through a five-step process to help you design your term sheet. So, you know, should it be equity? Should it be debt? How should investors get paid? So it'll help you kind of do some of the creative design that Anera was talking about. And I think I always, I feel like it's the art part of raising money. You're like creating a work of art when you're designing what it is you're offering to investors. So take your time, really think through the implications. I mean, you hear a lot of stories of entrepreneurs who raise money in a way that wasn't really the right fit, maybe because the investor hand them the term sheet and then there are many nightmares ensue so but I want to talk about force for good fun so um, I've been helping entrepreneurs raise money for about 12 years and um, you know we've had some great success stories but I do see them struggle a lot and so I said you know what I want to create a fund I, you know, I want to be on the, I, I do some investing in my clients, but it's, you know, fairly small amounts. So I was like, I really want to create a fund so we can really start investing in businesses like my clients. So I got together with Lyft Economy, which is a really great um, management consulting firm that has amazing mission-driven clients. And we put together a, a plan to create an investment fund that is, it's, it's out of a nonprofit organization. And the reason we did that is because the laws governing funds that are out of nonprofit organizations are less onerous than for-profit funds. So it allowed us to raise money from the public. We, the minimum investment was $1,000. How many investors did we end up with? I can't remember, 100 or so. 120. So we have 120 investors. We raised over $1.1 million. Uh, you know, it was a... A pilot fund. We've just deployed uh, investments in 13 really amazing businesses, and you know we we um, created the each investment to really fit each business's particular situation. Um, there's no exits expected, although you know if one happens, great. Um, but that does, you know we will still get paid back whether there's an exit or not because we've designed it that way. So. We're really, really proud of the Force for Good Fund, and you know we hope to do more of that. And it was another example of something where we raised a fairly large amount of money with a, a, a 
fairly high risk offering and a fairly low return. <laughs> um, so our minimum annual return on average over eight years, so it won't be every year you get this, but by the end of the eight years, the investors will get a minimum of two and a half percent average per year. It could be more if we, if our investee, if our investees do well. Um, and it's, you know, and it's a fairly high, high risk investment because we, we really wanted to invest in fairly, you know, in the kinds of businesses that are that are that struggle to raise money from, you know, more risk averse investors. So we were really thrilled to be able to raise 1.1 million with an offering like that. And it just proves once again that your returns don't have to be eye-popping to raise money. That's great. And actually, you know, the way that you, you said that, Jenny, um, that those investments were higher risk, it makes me think about what Ted pointed out, because I like to flip it a little bit. Like, what's the risk in not investing in the type, type of enterprises that Force for Good is investing in? What's the risk to all of us in terms of that? Um, so I'm just going to open up to the panel to actually, if you had any questions for each other, because you guys know each other very well, but um, if there are any kind of questions that you wanted to have posed out there. I have a question for you, Jenny. I, I just find it unusual, and I'm wondering if you've thought about this, but it seems like some of your clients' greatest success has come from raising money from people who probably don't have a lot of it. And um, I guess that it may be because they're super unsophisticated and they've been taken advantage of, um, but there's probably another way to look at that. Um, why do you... Why, why is that? Yeah, good question. So if you focus on professional investors, meaning, you know, people who are part of angel groups, VCs, um, family offices, that, that group, everyone who spends a fair amount of time thinking about investing money, that group is 0.3% of the total population of investors in our country. Because 50% of the population of our country are investors, but they don't think of themselves as investors. So if you just focus on professional investors, it's a tiny group of people, and guess what? That's where everyone's going, right? So like 99% of entrepreneurs are all going to this 0.3% of the population of investors. So I tell my clients, why not talk to people who are not professional investors, some of whom may be quite wealthy, some of whom may be less wealthy. Um, I, I really advise, you know, and all my clients are different, so it's I give different advice to different clients. But generally speaking, having a larger number of smaller investors makes life a lot easier when you're raising money because each investor is risking less money and and so it's easier to find investors that are willing to do that. And it makes your life easier because when you have a larger number of smaller investors, generally speaking, no one wants any control whatsoever. So my clients pretty much never give up control. So it's, it's great because I know Ted was joking about you know the sophisticated uh, investor when it was coming to Jenny's products was, because I was thinking the entire time, like how how sophisticated were the investors that turned down Maven, right? Like <laughs> like I'm actually you know I'm happy that Keisha Cash and others were able to identify that company, and I'm just thinking how sophisticated were you to miss that market? They're the smart money. We need a new name. They're not sophisticated investors. They're um, experienced, maybe something. We'll come up with something slightly derogatory. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about these alternatives to traditional venture capital funding. 
More on this topic and other ways of building the market at the intersection of money and meaning can be found on this podcast at our year-round SOCAP 365 events around the country and at the flagship SOCAP 18 event taking place this October 23rd through 26th in San Francisco. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.